Welcome to Searching for Mana, the podcast that investigates the mana. That's the superpower in some of the most influential leaders who are building the future in tech innovation and finance. I'm Lloyd Wahead, a London-born entrepreneur and headhunter with over 15 years experience on a mission to discover what drives our guests to succeed. How have they got to the top? What attributes have excelled in their career? Listen to find out. Welcome to Searching for Mana. Welcome to Searching for Mana, Christian. Thank you. Pleasure being uh, here. Good morning. Good morning. Fuller introduction is um, Christian Gabriel, um, CEO, founder of um, CapDesk. CapDesk um, were founded around 2015. And um, just to set the scene for the audience, uh, now at, um, and just through Series A, really recently, uh, I think, um, a few million pounds raised. Yeah. Um, So, of course, we'll go into details about the company's journey, Christian's background, um, where the company are at today and, you know, um, off the back of this recent raise, obviously what the plans are um, in terms of where to spend that money, what the challenges are, what the, um, what the, what the products um, looking to do with this, um, with this runway um, and a bunch of other stuff. So just before we do that, could you, um, could you give us an elevator pitch um, Christian so that the audience understand what CapDesk are all about? Yes, of course. So most companies, as we know them, are private companies. That means they're not on a stock exchange. And the amount of private companies has been growing immensely over the last 10 years or so. And it's because there's not really any appetite for IPOs. And um, that I kind of fostered this culture where you see these huge giants. It could be Deliveroo's, Revolut's, or Monzo's that have got thousands of employees, um, but yet they're still private. So what we have done is that we have given those companies a tool where they can issue all and transfer all the equity online. So it's, so to speak, a little bit like an accounting platform, think Sage or QuickBooks, but for equity in private companies. So we help those type of companies, large private companies, um, manage equity, employee share schemes for all their employees, um, equity for all their investors, and we also help them actually um, sell um, shares internally so that the shareholders can get liquidity. And uh, that's the gist of CapDesk. So as I like to say, we are the, the stock exchange for the 21st century. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, okay, so lots and lots of questions. Um, firstly, excited to have this podcast because um, you know, I'm always looking for somebody who's changing the way that um, you know people sit in preference to just making the chair. And this 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 feels to me like um, something that could do that. It's got the potential to, I think, have a few effects. So so one is if you are um, a company like you say who are quite large and we're talking there a few hundred people to potentially even a thousand now where they're still privately held. They could have been around for several years or more. Um, and, you know, previously you would have an Excel spreadsheet with, with thousands of entries on it um, of different equity levels. And, and this also could be somebody who, 
you know, had that equity several years ago versus today. So this this gets really messy. Then for that company, I can see the the benefits. So we'll go into it from them being the customer ultimately. And then if I'm um, an employee in that company, um, I can understand why I would want this um, to be able to visualize, I suppose, a few things, you know, what the level of my equity holding is and potentially what that means to me a year ago today and in the future. And then there's another effect, which is interesting to me, which is how does this change potentially, you know, the valuation of um, privately held businesses if there is a, an exchange of their equity? And that has all types of different repercussions that interest me. So I'd like to go into that as well. Um, let's start with, um, let's start with who I imagine where your initial business development on this journey was focused, which would be, you know, company with 500 staff equity mm-hmm. distributed across it. Um, I imagine, you know, year one, that was who you were targeting to try and explain the benefit of this service to and potentially still are. Um, can you give us some type of perspective of um, A, the journey and how that um, was received from those organizations? And then, you know, B, how they're using this to be more efficient? Yeah, of course, it's a good question. I think um, you're sort of right in who our first client was, but it's even, um, it's the same, but not the same. So my background was that um, I was working for an investment platform quite similar to the CrowdCube procedures before. Cool. And uh, it was when I was working on that platform. I'm originally Danish, so it's a Scandinavian platform. I was working on that platform. I noticed that, you know, these private companies would get thousands of investors. And I thought that these platforms actually found a way to solve it, um, you know, issuing the, the equity digitally, but they didn't. It was just all the spreadsheets and the legal documents. So I decided to uh, make a platform where we took that equity online. So our very first clients were actually equity, equity crowdfunded companies. So companies that had thousands of shareholders. And when we saw the problem that we could solve that problem, then it was very easy for us to say, not easy, but it was easier for us to say, now let's try to solve the problem for thousands of employees and multiple shareholders across multiple securities and so forth. And um, yeah, so that much came out of the, the crowdfunding uh, world, actually, to begin with. And so so that's kind of four or five years ago, right? Or, yeah. when, or even five, six years ago when you saw that when you were working for this this company. And what's happened since? Have have any of them gone and built that functionality in-house or is the opportunity still that you are um, who, who they're going to, to to roll out the equity to all these thousands of, of people? Yeah, I mean, now actually, uh, so last week we announced our partnership with Cedars. Yeah, uh, I saw, yeah. Yeah, we announced our partnership with Cedars. So we're finding more captives being a complementary um, part to the crowdfunding platforms and investment platforms in general. And I think it's, you know, how I like to go about it. Um, this is a metaphor for, I think, this is also where FinTech has changed a little bit over the years from when I got into FinTech and FinTech now and so forth. So yeah. when I was working for this investment platform, I like to say that the investment platforms was a little bit like looking at a street lamp at night. The only you'd walk through this dark street and the only thing you'd be able to see was this bulb of shining light. And you're like, oh, that's democratizing finance. These guys are, you know, changing the world of fintech, and 
they're getting an estrogen. That's amazing. But what you'll notice is when it, you know, when the day when the sun rose up and you'd be able to see the whole thing, you'd see that that bulb is mounted onto an iron cast that's in the ground. And then in the ground, it's connected to cables to a power generator. And that power generator is connected to another power generator. And you'd see all this platform actually is, is it's just another bulb in the existing infrastructure. What I wanted to do with CapDisk is create the power generator, the cords, the iron cast, so you could put any type of bulb into the machine you'd like. And I think that's the difference of you know, making an infrastructure and making you know, a product on top of an infrastructure. And it's got completely different challenges because when we started out in 2015, FinTech was, it was crowdfunding, it was peer-to-peer -peer lending, and it was payments. Nobody was really talking about like heavy infrastructure uh, projects. And we went out and said, we, we want to create the platform where the future of all um, equities, private equities issue and transfer. And the investor said, um, the investor said, okay, so how are you going to make money year one? And we said, we're not, we're not, it's going to take a long time to build. And that's where I think you have to take and make a lot of decisions because you have to make all these quick wins. You have to basically, instead of, in order to get there for the five-year plan to have this infrastructure, you need to hack yourself with these six-month milestones. So we were really good in the beginning to choose these six-month milestones, started being crowdfunded companies and then saying, how many investors can we sign up? Um, and then we'll go to investors and say, well, we signed up 3,000 investors this quarter. And they'll say, great, now you can get some more money. And the next, <laughs> and the next time again, you, ha you had some other metrics. And then we're just able, about, just able to keep ourselves enough alive that we could actually launch what we wanted to do. So, so five years into it, um, if, if you could go back to the moment where you conceptualized the idea um, and tell yourself whether to proceed or not, what would you say? Oh, that's a good question. I think uh, I would definitely have proceeded. You know, I would like the, the weird thing about CapDesk is that how we started out, it's a little bit different to, because um, we're in the fintech space, we're in a, in a somewhat regulated market. It's, it's quite complex what we're dealing with. But, you know, we were stuck in the smallest market in all of Europe, um, Denmark, probably, like, what's that, 6 million people. I was 25 years old without any finance degree. None of my co-founders had a finance degree. And we started out with, a, you know, wanting to make a secondary platform to win it. So I think one of the reasons why we got so far was, was that we were that naive uh, to begin with. I don't think if you've been along enough in the industry, you would said, okay, we can definitely do this and turn this to a viable business. So I think being naive definitely helped us in the beginning because we didn't have any predetermined thoughts about how the market and how it should work. We pretty much just, you know, took a lot, took a lot of beatings and then iterated to the product. And uh, you know, five five years um, forward, I think we're we're probably the best product in Europe. So I think it's because we were that naive. So I just say to myself, don't don't try to to philosophize about the future. Just, just do it. <laughs> <laughs> and did you um, did, see you'd been in that company for a couple of years, and then what you you weren't a finance grad. What what had you studied at university? So uh, so I studied computer science and uh, and media which is quite interesting. And um, the story is actually that 
And so after high school, I went to San Francisco to work as a graphic designer as an intern. And in San Francisco, I, you know, got my ass off the startups until I was kicked out of my six month visa and got back to Copenhagen. And then I was sitting there, just I had a, smelt the jungle, you know, like I had my first hit of the startup rock and there wasn't anything going on there. So I met the Danish ambassador to Canada and we agreed to set up an incubator together. We would rent an old theater and we would start just broadcasting crazy ideas to all these diplomat friends on LinkedIn. And that kind of escalated in our hands. So then we ended up having, you know, investors investing in other companies. And then I wanted to study computer science and media because I wanted to, to work with tech. And the week before I got into my, um, to study and start my degree, I got a call from this investment platform in Sweden saying, Hey, you guys are doing equity crowdfunding. We would like to basically buy out your debt and hire you as a country manager, uh, managing about three people. And I said, I have to study. And they said, you can do that at night. So my years before capitalist was basically just me working, like studying at night and then working full time as the CEO slash country manager of the, the Danish version of the, the investment platform. So I kind of have, had to learn the hard way. And then that's how I got into finance because I just had to learn it in the day. It's, it doesn't get more FinTech than that. I had the finance, finance from nine to six. And then at the evening I was studying tech. So, And, and so you'd gone out to San Fran even before your degree. Um, yeah. Where had you got the inspiration to do that? You know, it's a little bit weird. I just... Um, I didn't know that much about the tech scene, to be honest. This was in 2010, I believe. And it wasn't like the tech scene in San Francisco or something everybody was speaking about, so, so to speak. I had been working a little bit as a graphic designer um, for my dad. Um, he was a graphic designer. And then I'm not sure how this came about. I think it was actually from my dad's network or one of my friend's network that I could become an intern for something called Architecture for Humanity in San Francisco which was actually a nonprofit. Um, at that time, it was kind of a high profile nonprofit. It had like Cameron Diaz as their, uh, you know, <laughs> mascot or whatever. And like they had all these, like these cool things about them. So I was just super excited about going there. And the idea was actually that I should set up the own, my own chapter of Architecture for Humanity in Denmark afterwards. So that was the reason why I was sitting over there. And then when I came to San Francisco, it was just so boring sitting in that office. <laughs> You know, the people were all there were sitting like these designers and architects in, you know, their late 30s. And I was, you know, I, I was just about to turn 20 or turn 20. And I was like, oh, my God, it was went so slow and I had so much energy. And that's when I decided to just go out in the city. And uh, yeah, the startup scene just hit me. And then I didn't look back. So it was really good for me, actually. <laughs> also, I've probably been an architect. So from that moment, you realized that, you know, you could um go create things and you got excited about entrepreneurialism and then from the story you just explained you quite quickly found um a problem and then created cap desk um and then that's yeah. been the last five years for you so you've you kind of talked around where cap desk is now and some of the stuff you saw let's go a little bit deeper into into the mm. journey so when you got to um thinking about the concept um what were the next things that you did and um let's try and think of this from 
from a people perspective, I know you have some co-founders in Denmark. Yeah. Was was the next step to find the founding team that you were going to go create this with? Yeah, that was definitely the challenge to begin with. I think I probably had a lot of my ideas, uh, ideas in my early twenties, and you, you were probably a little bit right saying I was just searching for. Maybe I used five years searching for a problem, and then I used five years solving that problem. Um, and I think the main thing was that you know I'm not a technician by heart. Um, you need somebody that has experience if you want to build. Depends what you're building, but we were essentially building an enterprise SaaS fintech platform. You definitely need some people that have experience with that. And that was just so hard to find. So we found an investor, I mean, my co-founder. And the investor was like, you need to find a technical co-founder. I had coded like a very low mock-up prototype, so to speak. It's like, you need to find somebody. And our initial thought was going to India, which we, <laughs> which my investor said, you're not going to India, else I'm not going to invest. This is probably very good. And um, then I knew one of my friends who was the CTO of the lending-based platform, a lending-based platform in Denmark. And he recommended me um, some people. And I ended up make, meeting Miguel and Martin. And how I convinced them to work for Capitalist, I'm still not sure. But they had a consultancy and I could, you know, we agreed that if they worked a certain amount of hours, then they would get a certain amount of warrants in the company. And then we got started, released something in January, an absolutely awful um, product. But we, we got some traction and we got some more investments. And at that point, I convinced them to actually shut down. I actually let Capdisk acquire, so to speak, their consultancy and then for them to go full time. Um, so that was really lucky. So there was some stroke of luck in the beginning as well. <laughs> and And so at that point on a daily basis, what were people spending their time doing? So you've got one person there who's a deep technologist. Mm. He's, he's, he's spending most of his hours building the product. You, you yeah. are do and what are you doing? Just so that how big was that team? What was everybody doing at that point? So it was a little bit tricky. So how this worked out and uh, that's what I'll say to any founders who's listening to this podcast as well. It's something to worry about is that how this worked out is that um, my technical co-founders at that time were called my technical co-founders were really just a consultancy. And instead of me paying cash, I paid with warrants, right? So what would happen is that I would sit down and I would spec some user stories and some scenarios within the app, and then they would negotiate and try to remove as many user stories as possible. And I would try to add as many user stories as possible. And if they coded those user stories, it was my mistake in the end. I had to sign basically a piece of paper. This is your, like, you have screwed up if any of this doesn't work. But <laughs> I never built an enterprise app before, right? So I just had to research and I did all the wireframes. I did all the front end and I basically did the whole design of the app, um, even though I wasn't the technical guy. Um, and then I did that. And what they did, I believe, is that they, one of my two co-founders worked on it part-time and then they hired another part-time student employee to help them build it. And there was not really anything I could do with that because then it was locked in, you know, sort of bad luck, you know, you have agreed to this document saying that this is the user stories we're going to go for. So you can't change it now. So, and whenever something was released, I could just see, cause I've never had experience building the front end of an app before, but I literally built, you know, the whole infrastructure, the 
architecture and where, where things were that was built by me, which was really bad. Um, so I could just see the app not turning out as great as I probably thought. And they were just having a little bit more defensive saying, well, you did it, right? <laughs> um, so that was, so I used a lot of time just making sure, updating, making sure that that was just, that build was done right. It wasn't like that they just took it over and made my life super easy. They probably dragged me in it, into it quite a bit. And at the same time, I had to make sure that when we launched, I think this is also good advice for any other uh, entrepreneur wanting to start out. I kind of had to reverse engineer our success because I knew that our runway was so small. We only raised, I think being quite young and not having a good network, it meant that I couldn't get one of those crazy valuations that you would see for like a McKinsey or a Bain consultant in London starting a startup. They start with a valuation of like, you know, a million pounds or five million pounds. You know, I really had to start super at a super, super low valuation just to get in. So it meant that our runway was like, what was it? Maybe like eight months or so, six months, eight months. Um, so we really had to make sure that our metrics were just spot on. So I literally reversed engineered our metrics. And what that means is I went, I asked my business angel, what is the traction needed for us to raise a follow-up round? And he said, he gave me some metrics and I said, I kind of convinced him and said, if I can get 3000 high net worth individuals to sign up to the platform, um, in like one month, two months, wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Because at that time, everybody was speaking about the signups in these investment platforms because they're quite a lot worth. And he was like, if you could do that, I can definitely get you another round for my network. So then what I did is I now knew I had to get to 3000 signups. So I would then go out on my network. So with all the companies I've helped, um, you know, get investments through my, my job through the crowdfunding platform. And I'll go to the ones who've got the most investors. And I would say, I'm building this platform, use it and invite all your shareholders and it's free. Just invite them. And I want you to invite them in like January or December, please do it. And like Christian, we're quite busy. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to help you with investor relations. I'm going to help you with everything. Just do it. And it meant that I'd lined only maybe like six companies up and I knew pretty much most of them myself because um, it was through my previous network. So when this kind of very, <laughs> very shitty platform was launched in January, you know, within the first month we had 3,000 investors and we could show this hockey stick saying within launch 3,000 investors. And that meant that I could go out and get more investors from my uh, investor because he was like, oh, guys, you actually delivered on this. And then we raised another small round and that was enough for me to go to the UK right away. Um, yeah. And then I started doing the same in the UK. And so, at what point did the guys who you'd been working with, who in essence were a consultancy, um, become, um, you said you, you know, you kind of acquired their business. And so at what point into the journey was that? And they are now still full-time co-founders and this was a good decision because I mean, early on, it sounds like it wasn't an ideal um, relationship. No, it was an ideal relationship early on. I think when we got the new funding round in January, then I had to, I couldn't give up more warrants because, you know, I needed to, and I needed to scale up the tech development. So I asked them and obviously they just, they, we could get, a, I believe, a discount on their consultancy fees, which was obviously, we, we couldn't afford that. Like I was giving myself close to nothing in salary. Um, so I, I definitely couldn't afford a consultancy fee. Um, so that's when the conversation came about, like, what do we do? Because we cannot afford with this round. 
the realm would probably last us like three months if we had to pay the consultancy fee. Um, so what do we do? And I think that was the, the probably the best decision in capitalist is that I I convinced them to go you know to be equal co-founders in capitalist, and then we could bring over the new employees and we could buy some of the inventory. And they said, obviously, we need to close down some contracts um, for consultancy, and then we can go full time after summer. This was in January, and then after summer we can both start full time. I also believe that, yeah. And this, and, was, this uh, was January. What year? Sorry, uh, that was sixteen, I believe. Sixteen. Yeah. 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 So, so I think that was. I think there was a lot of things I would have. Let's just say, if I had been a seasoned entrepreneur, I'd done it before and so forth. I would probably have been much better at running this tech recruitment process because I would be better at doing it. But I think maybe the first year was just trying around and also in Denmark where there isn't necessarily, you know, a tech genius behind every corner. Like there's yep. a lot, there's not an abundance of talent in Denmark. So I think it maybe took us a year. And then when I got them involved, there was, we also needed to make sure that there were some other commitments that was taken care of. So we didn't just yep. get a coding team starting from day one. So it meant we were a little bit delayed in getting launched. But and since doing that, Christian, and they're equal founders now, that's yeah. been a good decision. They they are they work on it full time and it's part of the success of the business. Oh my god, yeah. I'm not sure yeah. what I would have done without them. I mean, yeah. I think they have they've definitely taken been part of taking this to the next level, right? Because at the end of the day, we didn't know what to build. I didn't know how equity convertible nodes and the secondary market would work like. And I think what happens if you get a really, really strong technical co-founders, like my two co-founders that have been building apps for enterprises for, you know, 10 years, 15 years, is for them to come in and analyze and figure out what to build and um, basically prepare what, like a report of how we interpret the world, how we interpret equity, uh, run the processes of interviews, and then make the architecture of the platform and just ask questions and then build it. Um, I think... One of the reasons for our success, I believe, is that we are tech first, finance second, and not finance first, uh, tech second. And that's yep. very much due to my technical co-founders and perhaps also my technical expertise of also always downing financial concepts and then, but not downing tech. Let's start with a strong tech, uh, tech infrastructure and then build financial um, concepts on top of that. Yeah, so with, with hindsight, um, you know, you can't change anything because this is what's put it into this position and you had to as an entrepreneur who didn't yeah. have a, a big runway or a network of here's a hundred you know amazing yeah. full full stack guys who want to be my co-founder you had to proceed the way you did and it's good that you did but with hindsight if anybody could then the benefit of having somebody who's not a consultant outsourced you know fully staked in the business is that you're not having to like draw up protos and make a second guess that this is how it should look. You guys can be watching it fluidly the whole time and able to therefore iterate as the customer requires you to. So, because this is a big debate over the last five years is, you know, do you go and give your 10, 20, 30% equity away, whatever it is, to the guy who's the the technical, the deep technical co-founder or do you not? And there's difference of opinions because we've had a lot of successful businesses that are design orientated recently. Mm. Um, yeah. And so you, you you see some founders not think that it's it's worthwhile um, and others who, who do. And in your instance, where the business is tech first, service mm. second, mm. then with hindsight, you should 
try and find your technical co-founder from day one if you can. And if you can't, you need to appreciate that you need to do whatever you can to get there very quickly because the moment that you do is a blessing, right? I completely agree. I think there's two things to it, though. Um, I mean, the first thing is that I should definitely... Um, you know, our relationship was a little bit, I was the young gun. They were, they've been, they were the seasoned, you know, uh, grumpy old guys. It's like, okay, you're moving a little bit too fast now. This is how we do it. We've got kids, you know, wait a minute. And I was like, no, 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 come on. Let's, you know, let's build, let's do it faster. And um, I mean, ideally what we would, would have done is used in a year, like use that year just to brainstorm, make concepts and for them to get really comfortable with me. And then once they felt comfortable, we've gone all in. But you know, I mean, I also think, again, it's different for each startup because this industry we're in right now did not exist when I started out. So there wasn't anybody to look at really um, in terms of there wasn't any equity management platforms back then. You just got an idea and most investors said that the market size was too small and this niche product and it was a stupid idea really. And I think what happened with the limitations that my technical co-founders gave me it was really helpful because if I had been able to build everything I wanted to build, I had taken too many decisions uh, too prematurely. So the thing about hitting the market with a shitty product is it's quite good because you like, I think every founder, every CEO should have a year where he's, he's try having to sell a bad product because of those sales conversations where you speak to the client, you get so much knowledge about what's there. And if you are one of those, if I were one of those CEOs at the time, that would literally, you know, raise a one million pound round from the get go, get my engineers to start working, get a designer in, and also have maybe like have a, a sales associate. Then I wouldn't have experienced and been exploited to to those market feedback um, and market mechanisms. Which I guess if it's an existing product that you know and like let's say you want to do Amazon, the UK version of Amazon or the UK version of whatever, then it's easier for you to to go in there and, and hire a team and get started, you know, the rocket incident model. But I think if you're working in a new market, you need to take those beats yourself as a CEO. And that's what ultimately makes you a good CEO in your company over the course of five years is that you know how the market developed, you know what the client said, you know what to put in the product, what not to put in the product. All those things over five years just adds up to a lot of strategic thinking, I think. And yeah. I wouldn't take them for granted. <laughs> What um, what, I love the story you, you tell about how you know you had um, these these more seasoned guys kind of having to push you back, and obviously you're super ambitious, and that's a great dynamic. I can see how that can work out if the balance balance is right. Um, what what are you like now? Are you are you still um, you still got a huge vision? And like, if you could talk us through what that is over the next year, three, five, ten, etc. Yeah, of course. So, so it's been weird with this project because I've always been quite, quite restless and getting bored of things. But for some reason, with CapDesk, it's a little bit like when you see a kid playing with Lego, who's just so excited to get up and continue, continue building his Lego castle or whatever. It's a little bit the same feeling, because essentially what we have been doing is infrastructure. So it becomes every time you launch a new thing on infrastructure, it becomes more and more fun. Um, so you know, two weeks ago we launched our um what we've been working on for five years really uh, the ability to transfer equity privately so between shareholders or secondary transactions and and you know last week we launched our integration with cedars 
making us you know the first platform in Europe that can provide liquidity both for employees and shareholders. And but the thing is, we've got about a hundred thousand users who are all shareholders or employees in you know a lot of like really high growth companies. We've got about a thousand high growth companies, and we've got close to thirty billion pounds worth of assets. And then we've got a great technology and a great team and a great culture. And I just think there's so much we can do now because all of a sudden we're in a space where we can, you know, I'm not in a rush to solve liquidity within this year. I don't think that's if I were in a rush to do that, I would be able to solve it. So my vision is the capitalist is that, okay, guys, quiet down. Let's test while all these other guys try to solve liquidity and having to raise you know, yeah, 50 million pound round, burn out all the money in one year. And then they fail and they can't raise again. We are the position now because we've been um, we've been so cost efficient. So we're in a position right now where I can say our core business, so our core subscription business, is growing steadily, even in these times. The market is going to go from a niche market, I believe, to something a little bit like zero. How zero started working with SMEs. So we're going to see the sage to zero revolution. So the market is going to go extremely mainstream within the course of ten years, and that's going to mean that our uh, monthly subscription-based growth is going to grow, and we will in the, initially be a unicorn just by the subscription-based revenue in the course of ten years. So just wait for that. Just sit tight. Let's be cost-efficient, and at the same time, we can experiment with you know the secondary market in between because we can cover all our cost with our subscription tracks track. So we can make these. Well, the, the, a good word. Good, a good word would be entrepreneurship, right? We can actually put in teams within Capdesk to experiment with solving one of the biggest um, uh, paradoxes in uh, Europe's private equity scene, which is liquidity in private companies. And we just have a young team that's super ambitious, tech first with a great infrastructure, and we've got many years to prove that. So that's what makes me super excited. Yeah. And also, we also have a track where we can integrate with partners such as Cedars. We're also speaking to other partners where they would use us as kind of the main API for settling equity. So they know that capital calls the equity, and that's cool. So all the hard work, I believe, all the, the worst years where the market didn't believe us, the VCs didn't believe us, nobody could see the industry, I think those are over. Now people are saying, oh, that's a great idea. I had the same idea a couple of years ago. You know, we're more kind of, we're going a little bit more mainstream now, getting more attention and it's making it a little bit more fun. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a big opportunity that um, it can contain all of your ambition, it would seem, for, for, <laughs> yeah. for a while. So that's... So that's that's cool that you've ended in, up in that position. So, just just um, thinking for a few situations, um, you know, it, it's a seven hundred person private company. You know, they're they're scaling quickly. Then, just talk us through the experience of an employee in that who's been given some options. Yes, of course. I think I'll probably explain what happens to, uh, with an employee who's given options right now. And then with Capdesk, so you can see the difference. So what happens right now is that you will probably be calling for an interview and then you'll be given that compensation package. And then that compensation package will be some options. So options are not shares. It's an opportunity to buy shares at a discount. So there will be sort of a strike price of these shares saying the last round, our share price was hundred pounds per share, but you're getting to buy it at 20 pounds per share. Isn't that great? Um, that's the first thing. Then you're giving a percentage of the company. So that means you're entitled to buy shares worth 0.001% of the company. And then lastly, um, 
Oh, can you still hear me? Yep. Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then lastly, you're giving, because you're buying equity at a discount in a private company, you pr pretty much hold it through a tax scheme. So the company has been li liaising with um, the HMRC in order to give you the best kind of uh, tax treatment. Yep. Um, then they call, then you, ex then lastly, you have a vesting schedule, meaning you don't just get all the options right away. You get to pretty much get your options over with some parameters and some clauses over four years. So yep. the longer you work in the company, the more options you get. And uh, then you just sign a piece of paper and you never speak about it again. Um, should you then leave the company, they will say to you, uh, or they won't even say to you, they'll be like, okay, you're leaving, fine. And then they'll just, and <laughs> then they'll just take your piece of paper and uh, tear it to shreds and put the options back into the pool. And now there's so many things wrong with this process here. Um, so many things wrong. And I've seen so many horror stories. So, so first of all, um, what is the percentage of the company? How do they know what the percentage of the company is if they don't give them the cap table? So the company, the employee would say, I would like 5% of the company. And then you can literally put whatever you want into that contract because it's not legally binding, so to speak. And the second thing is that once you've been granting those options, how can you then, do, do you know that valuation is good? How do you know that that valuation is fair and it's not higher than what the investors pay? Because let's just say that the valuation is there is higher than what your investors just paid. Then they're just being asked to become an investor, future investor. Um, um, so that if are you in the money or out of the money? Lastly, because this needs to be treated with tax, um, if you're in, if you're a shareholder, you would actually get a certificate, a EIS certificate, to claim that hey, I've invested into this company, and this is your certificate granting you a certain um, tax treatment. Yep. But Here's the perverse thing for, for employees is that the company actually handles your matters with HMRC without letting you know about it. So what that means, and lastly, you don't have access to how much you've actually vested of the options. You just sit there and wait. So nobody actually knows uh, what's going on. And what happens is that you have some of these employees that are having a financial instrument, maybe worth more than a hundred thousand pounds without knowing about it without being able to know if the tax is handled correctly, without knowing um, how much of the company they own, and without knowing how future funding round is going to affect them. Because if they're bringing a new investor with new clauses, then they might not get that money out and they might want to sell them at a discount instead. So all of a sudden you're having these people who are holding a financial instrument that's more worth than more than hundred thousand pounds. And they're basically retail investors. So they don't know anything about finance. And they don't have any information at all. And yeah, this leads to a lot of, lot of lift. And the problem is that the company has an incentive to keep it less transparent for the P because they don't want to deal with all those questions all the time and they don't want to. So there's this, this perverse thing happening where they're giving out options in order to compensate for a salary where the employee don't really knows or have got access to what's going on. So on CapDesk, we digitize all the equity on a portal. And then we actually um, let the company put in an option scheme. That option scheme is sent digitally to the employee where the employee can track all the different tax clauses, everything. Once the employee signs, he's then invited into a dashboard, a little bit like checking your payslip every single month. And on that dashboard, he can see the percentage he owns, he has a stake in the company. He can see how much options he's vested. 
and then he's got a chance to actually exercise. So whenever he, can buy, he wants to buy those options, he can go in and captors can buy them through the platform. And if he wants to sell them, he can even sell them through the platform. And when he leaves, he will be able to see what's going to happen with the options now. And we're going to notify him about it. And if he wants to buy his options, we actually convert him into an investor with a fuel investor uh, view of the company where you can see all the shareholder updates, all the documents I invited to shareholder assemblies and so forth. Um, so that's the experiment with Capdesk. And it makes the company's life easier because they can then track all those options they've issued who have actually earned what. So, Christian, that is phenomenal. Um, as you said, some of the companies aren't incentivized for it to be transparent at all points. Um, mm. Well, certainly that that would be a way of thinking until you, you, you try to enlighten them. What has been... Um, what have been some of the rebuttals here? So you you, you let a company know about this mm. and uh, some of them go, fantastic, let's do it. Mm. As, as they have, you've got loads of guys signed up. What, what are the pushbacks? Why wouldn't people do this? I think it's more, it's, it's interesting, right? Because it's a little bit like a communication thing. So when you sold Zero uh, or QuickBook, uh, QuickBooks or Sage, who would you go to an organization? Would you go to the CFO or would you go to the CEO? If you go to the CFO, he most likely be paid to sort that out. So you would say, no, I'm already doing it. Um, and if you go to the CEO, he says, oh, that's a great software. I'm just going to hear my CFO. And he says, no, he's already doing it. So <laughs> it's sort of who, who wins with having the software. And um, we very quickly figured out that the CEOs have no clue this is all going on. I probably wouldn't have a clue that it was this transparent if I didn't have, <laughs> if it wasn't in the space uh, as a CEO. So you can't really go to the CEOs because you would just say, well, it's sorted. Um, we are doing everything extremely transparent without really knowing anything about it. And if you go to the CFO, the CFO will probably say, well, I've made this framework that I've been using for 15 years. Now don't come and tell me that that's wrong. Uh, that's how, that's what not HMRC advises us to do. And then they'll send us this long email, well, HMRC advises us to do this. And I would say, well, don't you feel it's a little bit transparent? Who are you to tell me it's transparent? So that's what happens sometimes. Um, because we're just early adapters, but I think what happens right now is that there's so many employees and shareholders using CapDesk that these network effects and that the law firms, you know, we're being endorsed by the largest law firms in Europe and the largest accountants in Europe now. And a lot of the VCs, the largest VCs are also, you know, endorsing using CapDesk. So it just took a lot of years in order to educate kind of the market about this should be done in a better way. And I think, you know, over the course, as I said, a couple of minutes ago, I think over the course of 10 years, the government is going to come out and say, if you give a financial instrument to a retail investor, be it an option or share, they need to be handled digitally and know everything that's going on in the company uh, because we want to protect them. And you should use CapDesk. And um, you should use CapDesk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's see. So, so, right? so it's, got, it's got to the point now um, then that, it's almost a benefit that a company is selling as companies do, right? It's, you know, yeah. um, we've got this employee benefit um, pool of, um, you know, holidays away, you know, flexible working. And then also now, you know, we've got a digital way that you can visualize your options. So it becomes a thing that everybody wants. So you're at that really awesome or you're through that inflection point where actually now like you say just the network effect should mean that um it goes from no one having it to very few it's really hard yeah. for you to promote it to now that cfo who had his system 
and he would have loved that Excel spreadsheet, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> he, 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 he's kind of, uh, he's, he's in a situation where he looks um, like he's passed it unless he starts adopting this in, in certain types of companies for yeah. sure. So, so that's super exciting for you. Um, what is the, um, the secondary market in terms of where, where we are with that? Has, has that gone live? Are people, have people, has the first um, shares been sold through that or is, is that at kind of beta phase? Where are we at with it? Yeah, so it's still really early what we're doing in the market. Um, essentially what we're doing is that we're not, this is the confusing bit, we're not really a marketplace alone. Um, so Cedars, our partnership with Cedars, Cedars is a marketplace. We're really not. We are more the engine that can transfer, like can transfer a share from A to B digitally. And that's the innovation that we do. So on the cap table, if there was anybody on the cap table, give it, it could be a hundred employees that wanted to transfer their options to one investor. Then we could take care of all that paperwork, uh, payments, documentation. And um, that necessarily didn't happen. That could, couldn't really happen before. So as I like to say, it, we have, uh, we have um, empowered companies to do reverse crowdfunding rounds, <laughs> which is, um, you know, one existing investor buying shares of a hundred ex- existing uh, options holders, perhaps. And so we're seeing those tracks, uh, um, transactions a little bit ad hoc. We have, we're doing, um, I think 3 million pounds of those kind of transactions here in June. And then we're doing some with Cedars. So if we go together with Cedars, we will be a marketplace, right? Because Cedars is market, but we're just transferring the shares to Cedars because we can transfer them to A to B. So we can transfer yeah. them everywhere we like. Um, but yeah, I think it's still, the interesting part about the space is that it needs to be done so carefully. So yeah. we are very, it's very manually. I think as Reid Hoffman likes to say, do things that don't scale and scale later. And right <laughs> now we are, there's no transactions coming through CapDisk that's not basically manpowered by three different people. Um, yeah. Because we need to make sure and understand from the transaction what's going on, just to, just in case. And cool. then we've done that like a hundred times, we can then scale it up. So let me just understand this. Um, I'm at like 75% understanding in preference to your 99.9. And I'm sure some of the audience would be interested in this. You would now be able to, particularly with a partnership with Cedars, sell your, your equity in the business that you are working in, which is a very interesting psychological thing to do. And um, if, you know, as a, as a owner of a business myself, um, I'm thinking this through from a few perspectives. So one, okay, I get it. I've set up an options pool. I want the guys to be able to see this like they can see their, um, um, you know, their, their um, PAYE slips through zero, yeah. for instance, and their benefit schemes, and they can move flexi benefits around. Makes complete sense that they can see their options because... I've given it to them for them to feel like they're part of the business and get excited about our our value our value scaling. But now they can they can sell these um, mm-hmm. without what has always happened, which is us having to have an event. So I've given them this um, in this hypothetical because I want everybody holding hands either forevermore whilst we're a private business or until the point where we IPO are required or sell. But now they could just on their own go and flog their shares, but still be part of the business 
And um, I assume for somebody like me thinking that through that that's a concern. I don't like that. And you're definitely right. And I think one thing that I should probably point out is that all of these um, transactions happening on Capitalist is always initiated by the company itself. So whenever you cannot sell anything in the company you're in without the company initiating um, that transfer. So mm, as you yeah. said with events, actually sometimes I call our our product, uh, this is very boring uh, word, hence why I don't use it that much in marketing, but a liquidity event facilitation platform. Um, <laughs> because, uh, because the company can now set up a liquidity event and control the parameters of that event saying, last year price was 100 and we would like to do this maybe at a 10% discount. So it's 90. We would like to invite all these A shareholders. We would like to invite all the employees with fully vested options from last year. And we maybe already have a buyer. Um, Bolton would like to buy them out. And Bolton would like to have a minimum ticket of three million pounds. This is the parameters. Can we make that work? Press mm. basically execute. And then the first thing Capus does is that it asks everybody, uh, hey, Jonathan, um, how you've got 1,000 shares. You can sell them all at a 90 pound um, share price. How many would you like to sell? And then he says, I'd like to sell all, all, all 1,000. Great. Um, here we are. It's 90,000. Um, and uh, then he needs to sign a letter of intent, so to speak, and so forth, do KYC and ML. And then we line all the sellers off, and then we say, hey, actually, there's 3 million pounds. So, Bolton, you can get your minimum ticket of 3 million. Okay, let's now start transferring. Um, this, is, this is where the, a little bit of technicalities comes. Now let's start transferring all shares to Bolton. So, the transfer, Bolton would transfer their money to an escrow account. We would then, once the money's in the escrow account, we would start transferring all those share certificates to Bulletin. For the yeah. option holders, what we can actually do is something called a cash test exercise. So if the share price was 90 and you had to pay 50 uh, in exercise, we could just pay out the 40. So what we would yeah. do is we will convert the options into equity and sell the equity instantaneously. Um, yeah. And that's kind of the process of what we do. If yeah. in that example, I know it might be a little bit technical for some listeners, but let's just say that isn't this example, we only were able to raise 2 million pounds, hence we've got 1 million pounds missing. Um, um, then uh, the transaction might not go through with Bolton, and you could say Bolton doesn't want to buy this because they only want to buy for 3 million. Do you, would, should Capdisk send your uh, equity to a broker such as Cedars? And then we can actually send all that equity because we've literally just run the flow. We know how much they want to sell. We can send all that to a marketplace such as Cedars, but it could also be somebody else. So, um, so, so thanks for that. That's really useful technical information. And then the situation is, let's use you, right? You're at Series A. Um, let's say going into Series B, you've had, this includes you, um, quite a long period of time working in um, a private business that probably is going to still raise rounds for, for quite a while. And yeah. you and some of your team, you feel, um, you know, you're all still taking reasonable salaries. Um, you could have earned disparately more in larger corporates, but doesn't matter because you love this thing that you're creating and you're, you're waiting for that, that unicorn moment, as you said, which is definitely on its way. Um, you can use this to realize some of that um 
that that capital that's in that equity. And so you might decide as a CEO, do you know what? I feel like some of my guys should um, earn some cash, which would be yeah. useful for them. They're at this stage where, you know, there's material things that would be cool, take the stress off and we can all focus on on our mission carrying on. I don't want to just raise the Series B and be in the headlines, here's 10, 30 million that we've raised mm-hmm. and everyone's still sat there without being able to take their money out. And we see in the press a lot where, you know, leaders take the money out at that stage, but then the, the, the employees are still just exactly, left there. Exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah. So this becomes that thing I was talking about, again, where you could do a really great thing and go, let's take three million pounds to somebody like a Boulderton or two Acedas where yep. there's a secondary market for it. People can then take £100,000 here, 50 grand here, whatever it is. Uh, we do it all very transparently. They're taking the decision to take out 20% of their holdings or, or whatever it might be. Uh, and if I've got that right, Christian, then that's yeah. absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm 100% behind that. The, the thing that I was concerned about is where it goes if an employee could just put this onto a secondary yeah, market no, and then like there's a, a misaligned incentive. Exactly. And, you know, let me give you an example because I call this um, the biggest transactional disruption since the Industrial Revolution. And I'll tell you about that right now. Um, so I was actually doing a webinar with a law firm and we were speaking about what are we doing in these COVID times? What are some strategies you can do in COVID times? And... Um, I started pitching the secondary market piece, and obviously the law firm was a little bit, oh, that sounds a little bit dangerous. And I actually ended up converting them, saying that this is a brilliant idea, Christian. Why haven't we done this before? Yeah. And the idea goes as follows. If you can ask employees to take a 50% pay cut, but get options instead. You get options, you go to the board and you say, I would like you to come out and tell my employees that you have um, basically signed a waiver for next funding round and you've made the decision that we have to raise four million pound additionally in our next uh, Series B round. So we're raising that four million pound, um, and the share price is going to be between hundred and two hundred. And we have asked everybody to sign a waiver because we want to give all Corona. You're going to invest these options within a year, so not four years, a year. And if you're still with the company, we're going to do a Corona priority secondary transaction, Corona priority testing option uh, signature transaction event where you all get to sell. So if what that means is that if the share goes up to 200, you all made 50 pounds per share. And after tax, you would earn this, which is more than your base salary. However, it might also be possible that we raise 300, then you make three, three times your salary. But this transaction is there and the CEO is gonna go out and fundraise. I think what happens there is that all of a sudden you've completely aligned the incentive from the board to the CEO all the way down to the MPs in a way where they actually genuinely get excited about it. Because now they, now the CEO can say together with the board, which metrics should we hit in order to get the share price of 100, 200, and 300. And then he can communicate those, a little bit like a commission, he can communicate those share prices and everybody in the organization wins. Here comes the funding round, the CEO goes up to fundraise and the MPs can ask, how's it going with the fundraising? Can you raise the additional 3 million? I'm doing my best and so forth. What's the valuation going to be? And if that valuation turns out to be good, then you can actually, um, you know, in that secondary event, uh, cash out all of those employees who took um, options during the Corona times and they will earn more than before and the company is still there. So I think this is just some of the things that once you can make options liquid, um, liquid and you can have a transparent way of seeing them, 
then you can align incentives and you can actually make them kind of, uh, yeah, you can use the instrument in another way that's not symbolic. Yeah. Um, and then with a different hat on, what I was curious about is, um, you know, I'm constantly working with, talking to um, founders and I'm trying to work out which ones I think are going to keep tracking incredibly successfully. Um, and it's frustrating that you can't um, invest in those a whole lot of the time unless, um, as we've seen certainly since fintech came around, you have platforms like Cedars um, or, or, or the rest of those funding type of um, crowdfunding platforms where a company decides, okay, we're going to put a million, three million, whatever it is of um, crowdfunding out there, which I think they typically do um, to try and build community and sentiment, which is cool. But it's it's typically not like large amounts that you can get your your hands on as an investor. And so again, what's interesting to me is if suddenly a majority of private held companies, you know, around series A, B, C, uh, had the option where the employees can release uh, equity and therefore as an investor, you can buy into that um, beyond just the normal crowdfunding, then I love it because I would be making most of my personal investment plays in this space because uh, I believe that there's fundamentals you can see that mean that you can be making very interesting bets that come good. Um so I think, sorry, just, I think the, uh, the sound question just went one second. Okay. No worries. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Interesting. Yeah. I think my, um, <laughs> I just made a weird, sorry, these, these are new. just made a weird noise. <laughs> okay. I'll go back. Maybe your neighbor connected to AirPods. <laughs> just make sure that that is still recording. Yeah, it seems like it. Cool. But I think you're right about that. I think though that there's um there's two challenges here. There's the one challenge, which is the technical. Can you release the equity from the company, and can you make it transferable so they're there to be bought? And the second challenge is, do you have a marketplace that can represent and protect the future investors of that secondary in a necessary in a, in a good way and i think that's that's that that is at least um not something that we are interested in solving we would much rather partner with somebody that we trust is good at that because it's just a whole different thing because you need to start you need to start looking into the books of the startups to know that that valuation is fine and that those numbers are fine and you need to uh perhaps look at who, what was valuation last funding round, is the cap table correct, all of that things, because there is a danger of pump and dump, so to speak, that you just get the shares up to a ridiculous price, you sell them all out, and then you're stuck um, in this company with with a ridiculous high share price, and you never make your money out. So we are very much looking, and I think that's also how I see the future of capitalist is that we don't want to be exclusive as, as such for long term with any platform. We would like to be the settlement platform that you can connect with and you know that we know how much the, the company is, is worth in the last liberation and so forth. But then you can do the necess necessary measures in order to do due diligence and uh, get the right investors involved in the deal who you think is so. So, so for this next turn, um, 
you know, you've just raised very recently. What type of um, makeup of employees are you now bringing into the team to fulfill the next, the next, you know, I don't know how long runway you've got now, but, you know, let's say it's a couple of years or whatever. Yeah, exactly. what, what, one of the significant things you're doing right now is, is, is hiring. Could you explain what type of um, individuals you need to bring in right now? Yeah, I think um, I think the best way to explain this is probably what we've been what we've been doing for the last five years. So being to some extent quite underfunded compared to what the mission we wanted to achieve, it it has meant that we've had a management of maybe three people, me and my two co-founders, and then we have managed quite um, aristocratic, <laughs> I suppose, uh, uh, from uh, from the top down, which meant that that middle layer management hasn't been built in. And the, the pro of that is that um, we can get to be extremely cost efficient because we don't have any higher salaries with the managerial um, experience. And the con with that is that we cannot make kind of future planning in terms of scaling. Um, so what I like to say is that um, I literally spoke to another person about this a couple of days ago. But imagine you only raise funding for 10 months, right? So you've got 10 months runway, 10 months runway quite similar to what we've done maybe a year but a year's runway then if you're supposed to hire somebody it takes maybe a month two months to hire well you know all about that to hire a really really good person two months and then it takes maybe three months for them to get up to speed and skip full grasp at it then you've got then before you fundraise you need to give yourself at least a three four four month at least four month i would say um time to fundraise so you're not able to actually recruit and onboard a person and see the results that you can go out and fundraise with because you're fundraising on the results you've done six months. And that puts you in this total limbo where you're always understaffed and always trying to deliver, deliver these extremely high targets. But if you don't, you need to get out of that limbo because you need to smash the targets so high that you can actually raise funding for maybe two years instead of one year. Because once you can get break out of that limbo and you, you're, you do so well, that you can actually raise funding because you validation, right? Uh, and trust with investors. Once you can actually create so much trust that you can raise funding for two years, then you can start looking at building a longer term strategy. And I think it has taken us quite a bit of while to get out of that like uh, that underfunded um, catch 22 circle. So now we have raised funding for yeah over two years. And that's because we want to now build in that middle management. We want to be able to spend six months of recruiting somebody we really like, and we want to spend six months in getting out to speed. And then they've got six months where they need to, put, <laughs> to deliver. And then we've got six months to fundraise. Um, and I think that's what you need to plan in. I think way too few startups are actually planning in what it takes to scale a team. It takes a long time. It can't just be done with, um, just speaking, speaking to, you, to your trade here as well. It just cannot be done a single founder um, over the course of two months. <laughs> so that's, so. So what an exciting moment for you. This is where you get to bring in the team and um, lay out the culture. Um, not that you haven't anyway, um, but to that mid middle management. And it will also be, if you land that properly, super refreshing to have other people who've, you know, got some experience of the best at what they do, perhaps yeah. better than you and the founders at certain things, if exactly. push, um, is, is, is the aim. And so... That will be the. I, I imagine that will be the moment in the next year when you when you do that, where you'll be like, okay, this is absolutely everything now, right? 
you know you've yeah. got the traction you've got a product that you want to keep on working on forever that um the market's enjoying and then you've when you've got that full team it's just going to be all worth it and super exciting exactly um, with um with regards to not just the team but you know this next year or so when you're bringing people into a culture what um what are some of the value propositions if someone's listening to this we have a lot of audience who are in traditional finance tech or fintech already who are yeah. looking for their next role what do you think um would make this the right move for them what's the culture going to be like yeah i think if you want to work with uh with one of the few startups that's actually you know shaping up and changing finance um then come to captus we are literally changing employees the whole thing we're trying to implement is actually employee first throughout the whole culture so we are trying to upping our recruitment so actually giving out videos giving extremely well good feedback to um to our employees that we're recruiting if they, we don't recruit them we would like to you know for them to represent us at the next job interview so we are trying to take the employee first in whatever we do also from a branding point of view because we think that the employee has been so undervalued just like everybody focuses on founders but not these kick-ass employees and if we start focusing on kick-ass employees and give them another tools then we get a good employees but we also can use all the other employees to make business for us because if they never set capdesk the next time they go for a job and say i'd like to take a half a percent of stock options but they need to be in capdesk then we can get you know that um, viral effect going so it's an employee first company where we are continuously pushing the boundaries of what we can do for employees and how we can uh, make them equal co-founder of capdesk all our employees becomes equal co-founders with options and um, that's the first thing and the second bit is that um i like to call us uh it's been a little bit overused now but a camel like we're ex extremely resilient team that can you know take on any financial crisis that's to, that's to come and can make sure that you've got good working environment and then we only hire you know top talent so you get to work with the winners of tomorrow and we are our ambition is to you know we've got offices in denmark and uk and we're looking for more jurisdictions now so you'll be working globally which i think is will, quite nice will the main team keep coming into london you're based in london aren't you yeah so with the main team is based in london and then our tech team is based in denmark and actually a part of our package is that you can fly to denmark and copenhagen and spend some some days there with a team paid by capitalist and the danish employees can go to london and spend some nights there paid by capitalist as well in order to get like our cross-border relations working in this post-brexit world yeah cool <laughs> um yeah so i mean that's important if anyone's listening to this um we are in june 2020 so we've gone through obviously um covid which has been um insane um you you keep a close relationship with um the companies that um are using capdesk and uh, what are some of the what are some of the macro trends that you guys have seen mm, with the covid i think that i think in a crisis um what well, i'm looking for the right word here but you start seeing uh, less equality than before and you you see the winners really take up and the losers really you know step down and i think that's what we've seen that if you're already if you've made it to that critical seed series a stage then you're pretty much home safe no matter what you do if you're still pre-seed seed 
it, it has taken, uh, they've taken an unproportional hit than our, yeah. And then at the same time, we're also seeing people becoming more cost efficient. We can see people kind of restructuring the teams and being much more revenue first than they were before. And um, yeah, so I just think when something like this happens, unfortunately, I think there's less less spread of risk, that there's less, less bets on young entrepreneurs, there's less bets. You take the safe choices and that's what yeah. we're going to see. And what I think that means is we're going to see more bootstrapping because the I think, I think being the profile I was when I started Capdesk, I probably wouldn't be able to raise funding in this environment here um, because I wasn't a safe bet. You would have taken somebody that worked in corporate for a long time and had already built a startup. Hence, I would probably have to bootstrap it, which had turned Capdesk into a different thing. So I think we're going to see more healthy companies um, with more you like, um, yeah, with more kind of user first experiences because you need to make money off the bat right away. Um, yeah. So I think that's what we're going to see. Yeah, there's a there's a definite um, shift over the last year from, you know, everything being headline, clapping your hands for funding rounds to, you know, some calamities have happened. Um, where then the focus has moved away from just acquiring users and big attraction to there's COVID, there's a recession, let's make sustainable businesses that have profit. But this is because we're in the moment right now. You know, I like to take a 10-year view on these things. And I imagine that that will just carry on escalating once we get through this period. You're in a position where the the question that I'm interested to to to, to raise to you is do you think the trend of companies ever more staying private for longer will continue? That's a good question. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think if you, first of all, we have to look at the funds. So ultimately the funds determine that how, how much money is in the private markets. And if you look at the funds like SoftBank and other ones, you've never had these mega funds before and they've still got loads of money in them. They're just looking for safe investment opportunities. And what that means is that they're looking, the safe investment opportunities is pre-IPO companies, right? So we're going to see this disproportionate thing where the funds have become larger because the funds were larger, larger, like a larger carry, um, hence why they've become bigger and bigger and bigger. So many of the seed funds have become series A funds, many of the A funds have become series B funds. And it's just a natural thing that's gone, that's gone on. And many of these funds have got, you know, 10 year, 10 year um, period to, to get to, to prove um, to get payback for their investors. And that's still to come and they've got loads of cash. I think the amount of dry powder, so the amount of powder that's been raised by VCs but hasn't been spent yet is still at the highest. And what that's gonna mean is that if you are a series D company, you would have basically be in a club where you can pick your uh, your capital, who, you, who do you want capital for? Because you're in that special, you've already got revenue, you probably got like, two to 300 million uh, recurring revenue, maybe more. And you can literally pick who your investor would be, this growth capital. And there would be so many people who want to get that 1.5x return, or 1.2x return uh, as part of the strategy. And uh, they would even force you to take in more money. And that, that will still happen over the course of the next 10 years, I think. Um, I don't think anybody will choose the IPO route when there's still that money there, unless they want to cash out. But yeah, as, as Spotify did with the direct listing, but then you have software like Capdesk helping them to stay private. 
and, yeah. and do that. So exactly. That's where you could be positioned amongst a few things where then it, it helps the choice for them not to do that. And then the trend that we've seen where companies stay private for longer just keeps on escalating. And so again, if I'm going back to thinking about, you know, founding businesses, there's, there's you, but like in today, not five years ago or 10 years ago, then you're thinking, okay, so do the recent trend seems to be people are bootstrapping more, you know, it's harder to get venture capital money um, now at those early rounds. But actually, if you want to be a winner, then even more so you should go do it now because actually the further you push through mm. the funding, the bigger the prize is now, the more of the prize. And actually the, 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 the thing is, is if you don't have that money, you're competing against the companies that do have that money. So, yeah. you know, you said Capdesk would be a different company if you hadn't done what you had with venture capital raises. Um, the likelihood is it'd be a much smaller and less successful business, right? I assume mm. it, it, you might have by this point maybe have taken a bit of money out of it, but the reality is it's probably not going to be a, a business that's valued at a billion pounds at some point that's making a seismic change in finance uh, and laying an infrastructure technically. So, you know, that's my, that's my assumption. Do you, do you, would you recommend that tact as well? So even more yeah, so. You know, the interesting thing is when I came from, um, when I came to the US long ago there from San Francisco, the most successful companies I could see were from Denmark, even though Denmark has got the highest capital gains tax in the world. And I think the reason why we see so good things coming out of Scandinavia, also Sweden, and I think Sweden's got the most unicorns per capita in the world. Like the companies, tech companies in Denmark is amazing, much better than the UK by average in terms of what they're doing. And I think it's because you're doing it not for the money because you're not good. there's no financial incentive in doing it. It doesn't make sense with a capital gains tax on, you know, close effectively to 60% to make a, uh, a proper company when you can buy, buy an apartment instead of tax-free in Denmark. It just doesn't make sense. You need to be almost stupid to do it. And that's the reason why you really saw people out and the ones who really want to do it, they succeed. So I think the reason what we're going to see right now is the ones actually becoming entrepreneurs right now are the ones who really want to do it. It's not the ones who think, let me just have, I've been working in banking for six years. I've always had this FX idea. Let me just launch that and also launch a Bitcoin site. And then I'll set it next year and uh, I'll make my money back two X time. Like, there's so many of those ideas in London, and that's not going to cut it now. Now you need to be all in. And it's a little bit what we saw from the last crisis in 2008. I think many of the largest tech companies were founded in that crisis because you need to be so stupid to do it <laughs> that <laughs> it, you, you've got the answer against you from day one and uh, because there's no financial like motivation for it. And I think that's the true, that's when the real entrepreneurs comes out. Yeah. Um, do you, um, do you, kind of try and get your inspiration Christian from um, any particular mentors um, I think I think it's hard well I've been very very fortunate that I've got a lot of good shelters in my company and I've got a lot of my clients are some of the coolest companies in, in Europe those are my clients and uh, so I speak to them on a daily basis but I've always been I think I think it's hard to get a good mentor because it takes efforts from yourself. You need to be a certain personality. You need to be really good at building long-term relationships. 
that's maybe not what I'm, I'm very much like do things, uh, high energy, and I don't want to sit down for two hours every week just to listen to somebody what to do to tell me. I'd rather learn it my way and just, I'm the kind of person who just do a lot of decisions. And I know that I do a lot of decisions, make a lot of decisions really fast, but I also know I'll get feedback on those decisions really fast. So I'm not saying that's a leadership style that works for everybody and it can be damaging in a lot of ways, but that's how I learned to cope. I've tried to get mentors, but at the end of the day, I just want people around me who understands how I work as a CEO and supports me. I think um, uh, we've got few ventures as an investor and, uh, I cannot, you know, recommend a few ventures enough because all there is is a WhatsApp chat and to the manager, managing partner. And whenever I've got something, I just write him like, I want to do this. It's like, go, <laughs> go, uh, in the rocket emoji. And that's what I need for my management. It's just somebody that respects fast decisions. And then when things don't work out, you can call me an idiot and say, Christian, that was a horrible decision. And like, yeah, okay. But up back on the horse again. Uh, and then for other people, I know that they would like to, but it depends on the personality type you are. You would like to plan out a, a six-year strategy to go with a mentor and go through it all and how you're feeling today. And uh, yeah, I don't get that affected by what's going on around me. I can take a lot of beats. I just need to keep up my energy and feel free while I do it. <laughs> but, you're, but, you're, but you're soundboarding from um, people who you're working with or your investors um, who are obviously incredibly successful. So that's where you're being able to like refine yeah. decisions and then operate quick. So I get it. What are you doing outside of um, work, if anything? You know, do you have uh, do you have some passions, hobbies, interests that would be interesting for us to understand Christian a little bit better? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? This is uh, this is really weird. But when I'm, I obviously try to get some exercise, that's good. Play a little bit of tennis. But I've got this fascination for for history. And I think it's just like, the, I get really nerdy in history actually, because I think the more you learn about history, the more you've, it's the best motivation if you have a shit day is to figure out how much worse a day could look like in another life. <laughs> so, you know, whenever I'm stressed, I will watch these horrible documentaries, like these Ken Burns documentaries about the civil war where you can see dying people. And I'll read these horrible books about massacres and stuff like that. And it just really gave me motivation to say, like, who am I? Like, because history is such a big part of the picture. And I think it's so important when you're dealing with employees' life every day and, like, also my own employees, and you're, you're under constant pressure, just to look at it and say, you know, like the, like the Egyptians were here for 2,000 years, and you cannot mention a single civilian Egyptian. You can only mention the kings. So even if we're here for 2,000 more years, like, who will remember you, right? Like, just... Relax a little bit. Um, so so this, this, this is like a, a form of um, meditation for you almost. <laughs> what <are> you yeah, <laughs> definitely. This is hilarious. Um, so I used to, um, when uh, people I'd work with would get stressed because, um, you know, as headhunters, you get tasks put on you. And more often than not, it's got unreasonable expectations from clients right and so you learn to manage those expectations or you get very stressed um and so when people are starting to get stressed i used to um say to people like imagine that you're in this kind of glass capsule and uh you know you're sat where you are right now you're in a glass capsule and then slowly the glass capsule starts 
elevating. It starts yeah. taking off from where you are. And um, you can look down on, you know, your desk, where you're sat, wherever that is. And it just keeps yeah. on rising up. And then suddenly you can, now you can see London and you can see, you know, where you live and where your office is. And then it keeps going up. And now you've got a view of, yeah. you know, you know, everything. And, you know, people just look like, ants and uh, you, know, you can, see, <laughs> can see the oceans and you can see the mountains and you know it yeah, keeps yeah. going up Good one. and now try and like put into context just how you know that stress is just all kind of created in yeah. your own manifestation and you can take the actions that really you want um whereas what you do is you read about massacres <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. and civil oh. war yeah. but it's 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 doing yeah. it's doing it's yeah. doing a very similar thing, which is putting things into perspective. It. You can't take it too serious, right? Like, with sometimes exactly. like I'm sorry to say this, sometimes when I get an email from somebody who's like, "Oh, you sent this email to me. It's not a part of the GDPR, and I'm going to take it to court." And I'm like, "Okay, I, I get that, but like, it's it's binary code that just came in into a wrong binary code, and you're about to, you know." <laughs> like completely mental like it's everything is so you know in tech you know let's be honest okay of course there is we're dealing with money but there's a lot of the things we're going through it's just so elementary and i think you need to have that kind of in order to survive in a higher pressure environment you need to be able to see that it's not like what's life and death and what what's not and be able to have that humorous like um humorous part about it because as you know if you take yourself too seriously you're done i i i send out every now and again um so again as a headhunting firm we have to take like gdpr relatively seriously i mean obviously as you do in finance (laughs) um and so like we have to get everybody to sign up to you know if we want to send a newsletter out which is fair enough and then every now and again you'll just get somebody being like where have you got my information from (laughs) And, and, and I'm like, let me think this through because I'm getting hit with like a thousand messages every day from Spotify selling me services yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or whatever it might be. And like my perspective is just like, whatever, it goes into my spam. I can choose if I read it or not. And I'm like, what am I sending these people? So at some point, this person has signed up to mm. our database. They've had a chat with us about their career. Um, and we're sending out to them either, you know, podcasts from leaders in yeah. their particular sector where they can, you know, they could choose to listen and learn from it, maybe if they wanted to. We're sending, you know, like, okay, here's some updates of the cool companies that are hiring. It's not like in your face, kind of aggressive, give us your money type of stuff. It's like, if you read this, it might improve your career, but like, if not, push the button and just don't, that's cool. And literally you'll get people so outraged at you and like, I'm going to report you. And I'm just like, why is this person so stressed out about this? Like, they, do they really have that little to do? Anyway, um, you know, that's that's some of the fun of, of yeah. uh, G- GDPR. What, what I was going to ask you is you mentioned something when you said you're going to hire your team and you used like um, the expression, you know, we're going to find who the real champions are, who the real winners are. Yeah. For you, what is that? What, what makes somebody, you know... You, your company is going to try and hire the top 1%. What is it that makes somebody that champion? Yeah, I can, I've actually got, I just finished reading this book. I can also recommend to all my readers um, or, or, the, or the listeners here. It's called The Messy Middle. It's just a fantastic book. 
and I've had this idea like who is that person and then they they described it so well and uh, and what they called that person has literally just just lost it right now but I can explain, I can explain the um, I can explain the term so what I'm looking for is a little bit like I was myself it's people that that just see their job as more than nine to five that gets so emotionally involved in the job it's almost like co-founder you know, they want to wear the company badge they want to be part of like they just feel a different connection to work than other companies and they don't feel rewarded where they are so i know there's a lot of listeners right now that feel stuck in an office place where they are the only one who really takes it serious and if they really wanted to go out for some beers and brainstorm about how they could change something they knew that the ceo probably wouldn't listen or the other co-workers would be a little bit like okay you're working a little bit too hard now and it's almost that kind of dead put society-wide where you just want to do something more, but there's not incentive to do it because you don't really have options. There's not really any, you don't get a, you don't get any like, who recognizes it. So it's just, you're just all there as being like very entrepreneurial as a, um, as a personality. And you just want, yeah, you just, you just know that you're in your life right now where you need to experiment. And, and it's just so clear it's, you know, when you meet that person, it's just, wow, there you are. You're part of this, come about my team. Um, it's not necessarily their skill set. Their skill set is something that they learn and keep adapting. So I just look at myself really when I was in my twenties, you know, where what I learned, and I would be constantly online reading up, like coding, and I would just be doing things because I was curious. And I think when you find those people, that they've been, you would, they've got some traits that all kind of resonate. It just goes again and again and again. You'll be see that they're um, either entrepreneurial, setting up things in school, or they were doing just. You know, they would, uh, you know, if you, you ask them about high school, did you ever, you know, do something else with an assignment after you handed an assignment? Did you ever like work on it afterwards? And they might say yes. You know, that kind of additional, like they wanted to take something else. It doesn't mean work hours, to be honest. It's not like I want you to work from nine to nine. It just means that you're so energized and you feel so grateful for coming and working at the company. That gratefulness, you can feel that. Are people grateful in the office or are people just saying, I come here, you take my time, I take your money. You can feel the difference in that culture. And uh, I, I think it's very clear when you meet a person like that, where they just feel grateful for spending their life in your company and building things together with you. And I'm fine. I think people should absolutely, you know, you know, at six o'clock go home, you know, don't think about work. It's fine. But have that kind of sense of screw this whole thing. You know, why are we alive if we don't, try to change things while we're working six hours, like eight hours a day. Like, let's do something more than just do that. And that's the spirit I'd like to. If you build a team around that, then you just see, you know, people going out. I love when these Corona times, I've had my, my team members have in their own time started making these amazing quizzes every Friday. So they'll just be up all Thursday night, just preparing these amazing quizzes for Friday social. And that's people that cares about something else than, than work. And that's the people I want. Yeah, it's very, it's, it's very um, inspiring. It's when, you know, you can get somebody who's in their element. Um, and, you know, when you do, so if you can hire that correctly, Christian, which I'm sure you will, then it's, uh, it's easy. It's, it's easy to direct or manage them, right? Because, you know, it comes yeah. from them because they found something that they're passionate about. And, you know, it's a very overused phrase at the moment, purpose, which is, um, I think, somewhere along the lines of what you're talking about there. And that's why um, this show is called Searching for Mana, because uh, my, my whole experience has been um, trying to align 
you know, uh, a culture and an organization with somebody where that also aligns in terms of what they're trying to achieve. And when yeah. you do that, it's not the best CV or job spec match. Um, it's when you get somebody who just really vibes Christian and mm. your firm and the other people who are there. And then they start just creating themselves and become entrepreneurial. And it's an absolute pleasure to see that. That's why I spend my career making sure that I find um, those matches. And it's incredibly rewarding. And, and, you know, one person who's brilliant at one firm uh, will be terrible at another firm. So it's such yeah. an important thing for people to know what it is they're looking for f- before they hire them. Because like you say, it takes about five months for somebody to really land and start adding value. And, you know, you just see people getting this wrong the whole time and you know they've jumped around a load of places trying to find that purpose and uh you know their career goes by um but you're in you're in the other position now where you can make sure that the people who come and join the mission um you know walking around with smiles on their face so it's a super exciting time um i think that that covers most things at this stage for the audience to um to learn from you and 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 listen thank you so much for your time we'll um we'll we'll make sure that you know in a year or two whenever it is when there's big updates we catch up and we see what the next phase of the journey is is there anything you want to leave the audience with christian no i think uh i would would like to ask all the audience to make sure that if they have employees that they get options in a fair way or if you're an employee go in and demand that you get options in your company and uh, if they say no then ask why i think uh i think you all said it (laughs) perfect all right awesome cheers christian thanks for your time that's my light. Okay, bye. Please do visit us at manasearch.co.uk. At Mana, we find fintech talent by filling the gap between the archaic search firms and the voluminous recruitment firms. We are connected with the best talent within fintech. We conjure our headhunting skills to search and find the mana of the best teams. Please get in touch to find out how we can connect you with the very best talent in the market. All that's left for me to say is thanks once again for your support. Take care, stay safe, and see you very soon on Searching for Mana with Lloyd Warhead.